Good morning. It's good to be here again with you this morning. I have really exciting news this morning as we get started. We are going to be talking about unity in the church. I don't know if anyone else feels like we've belabored this point, um, but at this point, going through the book of Ephesians, I certainly feel that we have. And we brought it up whenever we talked about our new identity, looking at the beginning of the book, all the way back in November when we first started looking at <coughs> Ephesians, looking at how we identify with Christ, and then as a consequence of that, how new believers are actually grafted into God's body. And we see this continually emphasized that, that the new believer is one with Christ, and therefore one with the body of Christ. And then as we move into chapter 3, Paul starts to pray, and this emphasis in chapter 3 comes from, we are one body. Why are we one body? Why should we talk about unity? And Paul's finished this prayer, and we started looking at chapter 4 last week. And again, Paul writes that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling, striving to maintain unity in the church. Dang. When's this preacher going to talk about something else? There are some reasons why we might belabor a point, looking at it week after week as we study this book. The first one is it is belabored in the text. I, if you don't feel like we've belabored the point of unity at this point, then I have not been faithful in preaching the Word. The point is repeated in the text, and so we have to look at it again. Note, though, that this point is so important, so crucial to our Christian understanding, at least from the perspective of God's inspiration and recording the New Testament, that it is repeated biblically as well. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5 speak of the same thing. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13 speak of the same thing. And when we look at this, what we find is it's building up to something that's bigger. The reason Paul repeats himself so many times just now in the book of Ephesians is it's building to an understanding that is bigger and greater. So if we can really focus and get a hold of what we're trying to build to, we'll actually understand the bigger point when we come to it. Consequently, if we do not take a hold of how important unity is, or what it is, we may have some misunderstandings as we develop later. So bear with me, because Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus and the churches in the area who I'm sure that he thought would read this letter as well, felt that he had to repeat himself and come at this from different angles so that they would understand what he was actually saying. And I'm not saying that you're not smarter than the church in Ephesus. I'm just saying we probably need to go through this just like they did. It builds to something bigger. We made the point when we were looking at Paul's prayer in chapter 3 that he interrupts himself. He starts trying to pray in verse 1, and he, then he has to interrupt himself and explain himself some more so that when he actually prays in verse 14, the people that he's writing to would be ready to receive that prayer, which is for application. I wouldn't say that he interrupts himself again in chapter 4, but I do think it's interesting to point out that he is building up to something bigger. Look what he does. Verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
Then jump down to verse 18 of the same chapter. Oh, not verse 18. My notes are wrong. What do we do now? Verse 17. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then verse 17, that you must no longer work, walk as Gentiles do. Paul's not just repeating himself because he's an airhead. He's not repeating himself because he's frustrated that people aren't listening. After all, he wasn't preaching. He was writing a letter. They'd have it to go back and refer to. By the way, if you ever want to refer to a sermon again, they're published online. No, no. That wasn't what Paul was doing. He's developing an idea that is essential. In fact, I'm not going to do this this morning, but we could kind of map out or look at an outline of chapter 4, and we see that there's a bigger understanding that builds to our Christian maturity. Verse 3 encourages us that we would maintain unity, and then we look at verse 11, so that we can get involved in ministry. You can't get involved in ministry unless you maintain unity. And what's all this for? Look at verse 13, so that we can grow into Christian maturity. The real bigger reason why we might want to maintain Christian unity is so that we can grow up and not be children. We've talked about that before and how important it is, especially when we talk about our our spiritual maturity. Striving for unity is something that the mature believer does. And even going beyond that, It is something that the maturing believer does. You see, the problem, maybe all of the problems, at least a great majority of them, or the issues that we find within the church today, not just our church, but speaking in general of every church, the problem that exists in the Christian body is hinged to a failure to understand what the church is. Uh, we stress this point when we say church isn't a social club, that we come here to worship and, and that we do this as a community, but I would really venture, I don't think many Christians understand the doctrines of the church. If we jumped back and we looked at a, a Ephesians chapter 3, the passage that reveals, in verse 10 particularly, that through the church God has made known the manifold wisdom of God. When we think about what the church is, is it so amazing to us that we would describe it as the revelation of the manifold wisdom of God? It's right there, plain, in the text. If that's not the description we come up with on our own, we have misunderstood what the church is. So then, if we start to understand what the church is, we'll begin to regard it as something so tremendous, so amazing, that an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God in all of His wisdom is revealed through that. This is a big deal, friends. I want to think about that as, as we look at it this morning. As we continue to talk about what is this unity in the church, 
And we belabor this point yet again, that we might really understand it. Before looking at our text, though, would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, all of us experiencing different things. God, I know that the mornings include getting meals ready, getting children dressed, driving, de-icing windows sometimes. Oh, and all those trivial things are overwhelmed by the stresses that we bring with us from work and our relationships and the way that we care for them and the way that we worry for loved ones who we aren't able to help and the way that we, uh, the concerns that we have. God, I know that all of those concerns aren't going anywhere. And I need you now as we come to you as, as your church and as your body that we would leave those stresses out of this, those burdens out of this as we approach and seek to understand your word. Lord, we ask and request that you would aid us in our understanding, that you would guide us into truth and uh, knowledge that exceeds what is capable to know, as you promise. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen. Our text this morning will come from Ephesians chapter 4. We're just looking at three verses. Um, but in my notes, I will warn you, I think we will probably only make it through the first verse. So, and that's all right. We can look at it again later. Um, so we'll look at Ephesians. I'll read Ephesians 4 through 6, but our focus might just be on verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you who are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This morning as we move through our text, um, I really only have four points that I want to spend time discussing and expounding from this text, and they all begin with the letter E, and so hopefully that's some use, some, of some use to you whenever you go home this evening, uh, maybe as you're lying in bed and you say, what was that crazy young man who thinks he has authority or knows what he's doing, what was he saying? And you can remember the four E's that in this text we will explain what Paul's encouragement is, that we will emphasize what it means to be one. We will understand the essential nature of the church and what are the expectant outcomes of this understanding. First, let's explain what Paul's exhortation is. His exhortation or encouragement, he begins that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and he says that to do this, that you would maintain the unity that's in us, the passage that we looked at last week. He explains it, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you who were called to that hope belong, just as you who were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. His explanation then is that he would remind us why this one unity is so important. As Paul frequently does, 
In his writings, he starts with the doctrinal or the theological and or these kinds of ideas about what God is doing. And we saw him doing that at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. That as new believers, we're grafted in. We become a part of the body. We're adopted and inherited. Then he begins to describe the practical. A lot of people say, preacher, just give me the practical. I don't need all of that airhead stuff that comes before it. But notice in Paul's writing, the doctrinal and the practical cannot exist separate from one another. If we just focus on the practical, well, then this is just human wisdom. It's deceitful. If we just focus on the doctrinal, then there's no real application and we've really uh, lost the point of studying God's Word to begin with. We have to have both of these married together. In chapter 4, Paul starts to focus on what is the practical components of this manifold wisdom of God revealed in the church, being inherited into this great kingdom. What are the practical components of the, And he says that it's, it's unity, that we would be united to one another. More than that, he says that we're one body and one spirit, that we're called together with the, the same hope. What is this? Remember the doctrinal application that he just laid out is that you are a new creation when you've been saved. Christians, when they become saved, or or we say they're born again because they're no longer this old self, all of this wretched depravity that he describes. He says, you too, once when you walked in darkness, you were this, but now by the grace of God, for by grace you've been saved through faith, you are a new creature. This explanation then that he begins to build as he describes this body is, is simply this. He's not asking his believers to do something that's unnatural to them. He's not asking them to work towards something that they're not capable of. When he says maintain the unity of the Spirit, the emphasis is that that, that we would take care of something that's already there. We're maintaining it. You can't maintain something that doesn't exist. There is one body. I'm not asking you to seek unity with the, with the church or, or with other believers because that's something that goes against your nature. If you're new in Christ, that is your nature. It's not asking us to do something like this. The real problem, though, is inside the deceitfulness of our flesh and the depravity that we fight against. Striving for unity is not something that comes natural to any person. And here's the real issue. I said that most of the problems in the church stem from not understanding what the church is. Here's the real issue. When people who are outside of the church come in, and they see the same selfish ambition, the same self-serving motivations, the same emphasized preferences, an attitude that seeks to control. The unity of the gospel is defamed. 
You see, the unity of the gospel will be compromised only to the degree in which Christians in Ephesus and in Greenwood conform either to the world in which they live or the one spirit that lives within them. This practical component is so essential. It is a means to which Christendom and all of the local churches that we talk about when we reference that, all of the saved saints, it is the means to which their reputation is protected through a character that reflects Christ. That was completely essential. You see, the same spirit that is in you this morning, if you are saved, is the same spirit that is inside of me. When Paul writes, one body, one spirit. Think about this. The way the world talks about man's creation, we understand that man has different components or that every person has different components. You have a physical body, and and that's your physical body. You have a mind, and that's your emotions and your thoughts. But there's also something just totally untangible that we can't really measure or we can't get a hold of, but we know it's there. There's this spirit uh, element to what makes you. The way I think it has become common to understand that is this spirit is unique to each individual. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches that every person is born dead, and that means spiritually dead. That means every person that is born in this world comes to this world with a body and a mind and a dead spirit. That spirit only comes alive through Christ, through our conviction, through our convincing, through our our, um, conversion and then being conformed. And then the communion that we share with all believers. It's through that 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 spirit comes alive. And here's the real issue. It's not my spirit. It is the spirit of the holy God. It is the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me and the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. How can we be disunited in any way when we are one of the same? Not metaphorically, not, you know, this is literal. The Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. It is one spirit. It can't be divided. You don't have a portion of it, and I have a portion of it. It is one between us. Paul's not asking believers to be something that they're not. He's asking them to seek what they already are. Popular Bible verse, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am with them. Also, a very popularly misunderstood Bible verse, because if you went and looked at Matthew uh, chapter 18, where Jesus is saying this, you will note, going back to verse 15, what Jesus is talking about is church discipline. He's actually talking about when there's an issue with another believer, where another person has trespassed against somebody, where unity has been broken in one way or the other, where two or more are gathered in my name, This is what he's saying. When there's conflict or division or some issue or whatever this is, 
at the point that two people come together on an issue because they all share in the spirit, because they can't be disunited in something. If there are two who agree on something, that is the spirit of God leading them. I mean, sure, it's possible to corrupt this, but if you have three people and they're all saying that God's leading me this way, one person says God's leading me this way, God's leading me this way. Where two agree, this isn't just democratic. Those two are more likely to be in line with the Spirit. Those two are more likely to be in agreement with the Spirit. Which would only lead to the next conclusion that this third person is somehow in disharmony with the Spirit. Somehow in rebellion. And how necessary it is that we, that we yield to this when we see it. That we would maintain the unity given to us by the bonds of peace. It might seem strange to talk about uh, discipline whenever we're focusing on unity, but I think this is actually a good point to bring out. The fact that when we talk about unity, it does not mean avoiding conflict. In fact, instead it means responding. Paul's encouragement here is to live worthy of the calling that we have been given. It is all the more important that we strive for unity by pursuing issues of discipline with love with an attitude of reconciliation, with a heart that truly seeks to see restoration. If we're really to understand this description, that we are one body, think about it this way. I can't, some sort of acidic liquid, maybe an engineer would know something better for my illustration, but assume that there's some sort of noxious liquid. Whenever I dip my finger in it, it turns it wrinkled and maybe discolored and all, you know, all sorts of damage has come to this finger. When that happens, my brain does not say, cut that finger off. That would be absurd. My right arm doesn't say, rip this finger off and throw it in the trash. No. That doesn't mean I'm happy with this finger getting thrown into whatever this liquid was. But in my mind, I'm more upset at the liquid than I am my finger for causing harm to one of its fellow members. The truth is, in the body of Christ, and that means all who are in Christ, there is no way ever to be done or off with another member. There is no feasible mechanism for doing so. We're just talking about church discipline. And some of you say, well, isn't the, the last step of that to exclude fellowship with a member? I need you to understand that what the church is doing at that point or in any situation where that is coming up is the church is saying that a member is in such rebellion to the Spirit that it can no longer attest or believe that such a person is truly saved. 
That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Because the reality is there's no way we can cut off a member. That's why the motivation of church discipline is never to get to that point, but to seek reconciliation through repentance or or whatever it is to come back and to be in fellowship with one another. That's why it's so important that when we have issues, we confront them in the right attitude and in the right way. I do think Jesus would be ashamed of his church to find a group of people who are so cowardice, they will not take issue with another member in confidence. That they would not seek real restitution and real resolution. The real shame is that the world certainly sees whenever the church is divided. I can think of countless examples of people who say, I'd rather not go to church Well, because I've been hurt by a church, or this has happened, or the other. And all the while, the wonderful news of the gospel is detracted because of hurt feelings, because people are too cowardice to handle things the way that God instructs us to do. Man on his own will never seek oneness. Man is individualistic, and that sounds nice, doesn't doesn't it? To say that we're all individualistic, that we like an individual self and we like to think of ourselves that way. Let me clarify what I mean by individualistic. Man is by nature self-serving, ambitious for self-promotion, and divisive. It takes the working of God to bring us into harmony with one another. And that's why it's so special when we see a united church. That's what's so miraculous about this revelation of the manifold wisdom of God. It can only come from God. Notice in our passage this morning, the word one is repeated seven times. What a remarkable emphasis on one. I mentioned that Paul moves from the doctrinal to the practical, but it's also interesting here. He also kind of moves back to the doctrinal, doesn't he? Look at what he's pointing out. This oneness that he's calling attention to. One spirit, one Lord that is Christ, one God and Father. Why isn't this interesting? That the oneness of the church in some, has some sort of relationship with the Trinity. And I've talked about the Trinity before, and, and the way that I've always come across it or at it is just to say that I really have no idea how best to explain the Trinity. It is a baffling doctrine and concept clearly presented through Scripture. I think it's difficult, uh, if not impossible, to deny just walking through the Bible and seeing the different ways in which it is presented. But here we find a great example of such. One Spirit, one Lord, that is Christ, one Father. 
And all the while, these different persons of the triune God, they are not diminished in their own uniqueness. In the same way, my call that the church would be, or Paul's call, or Jesus' call, or through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, however we want to look at this, the instruction or the exhortation that we would seek unity is not a call that we would all be uniform. I think Coach, Coach Husband knows this best. We can take a bunch of uh, basketball players and we can put them in a jersey that looks the same and shorts that look the same. We can do the same with football teams and make them wear the same style pads and the same helmets. And you put them on a field, that doesn't mean it's a unified basketball team that's going to win games. Unity has nothing to do with our uniformity. Uh, this calling does not diminish diversity, rather it embraces diversity. And as I think of this, I can only help but remember that this instruction that Paul has isn't something new, but it's something recorded by John that came directly from Jesus himself. John 17, verse 21 and 22, that they may be one, this is Jesus speaking, his prayer, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me and the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. This picture of the unity in the Trinity is the same picture of, of Christ's body, of the, the grafted in members of this body being united through one spirit. The Trinity is a tough doctrine. I'm, I'm not going to try to um, elaborate on the Trinity that God is one. Uh, I will mention, though, just briefly, a heresy that appeared early in the church and I think is actually more common in our churches today than we realize called modalism. And modalism is basically the concept that, yes, there is a trinity, but the way that we understand it is that God manifests himself in different ways in different times to achieve a particular mode or purpose. And so, yes, there is one God, and sometimes he's God the Spirit, and sometimes he's God the Son, and sometimes he's God the Father. I don't want to get distracted too much down this rabbit hole, but maybe if you're interested in it, you'll ask me about it later, or you'll go read up on it your own, and I, can be, I would be happy to give you some resources as well. But what we really understand when we start understanding God this way is it has major consequences in the way that we understand the unity within the church. I mean, it totally detracts from what Paul is writing and encouraging us to do here. It's absolutely in conflict with what Jesus record, is recorded saying in John chapter 17, because we understand that the cataclysmic failures of this understanding through their application, because as the Son and the one, as the Son is one in the Father, and the Spirit is one in, with the Father, and the Son and is one with the Spirit, and so on and so on, we are in Christ. This is the description of salvation. I think, you know, if we looked at what Paul's writing in Ephesians, Paul would never say, hey, are you saved? Are you a Christian? He would say, are you in Christ? We are in Christ the same way that the Son is in the Father. This unity is remarkable. And so our fellowship with Him stems from it. If you're not interested in this weird uh, heresy that I, I brought up this morning. If you want to know more about this and great fellowship, go read 1 John. 
picture of the church reveals even the nature of God when the church is united. And how is that testimony defamed or damaged when it does not? This illustration of the church being the body of Christ, we're familiar with it because we talk about it quite a bit. Looking through the New Testament, I do believe that it is unique to Paul. And just in noting that, you know, I ask the question, because I notice Paul's the only one that continually describes the church as the body of Christ. Peter talks about us as living stones building up and, and all of these different things. Paul describes it as the body of Christ. And so I read that and I go, well, why is that? And I don't have an answer for you this morning. I just thought that it would be interesting to tell you that as I was studying, that was a question that I asked. But I do think it has something to do with Paul's personal conversion. When you think about the way that Paul was saved, it was quite dramatic, wasn't it? Here he is. Let's just, if you looked at Acts 9, in beginning in verse 1, you'd read about Paul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's reply is to ask, who are you, Lord? How do I persecute you? I'm just going after these Christians or these that belong to the way because the word Christian didn't exist yet in Acts 9. Just following along those lines, it makes sense why Paul would have spent the first three chapters of Ephesians explaining to us this doctrine of our new identity with the purpose of building to this practical element of our unity as one body. Paul realized in being confronted by Jesus, an attack on a Christian is an attack on Jesus. Well, that means an attack on a Christian, if you're a Christian, is an attack upon you. The persecution experienced in other parts of the world is a persecution that you are a part of. If that doesn't stir a burden, we may have to belabor this point just a bit more. I moved rather slowly this morning, and I'm sorry. We've made it halfway through my notes. So far, we've looked at um, this explanation of Paul's encouragement, and we've looked at this emphasis that he places on one and how it relates back to the triune God and then also as our body and our spirit are one with one another that we have communion with each other. Let me try to move a bit faster through this next point because all of this is really explaining the essential nature of the church. First, and uh, this is difficult for me as a BMA Baptist, but 
It is plainly written in Scripture, and so I'm going to do my best here to describe the invisible nature of the church. And that might be a bad word to describe this, but I think it's the easiest to understand it. This unity with the Spirit means that it is not just Christians within our church that share in unity, but it is Christians of every all over the world, who have experienced the same testimony of Christ. Who have experienced the same conversion, the same grafting in. And this is what's remarkable. This leaves the church completely innumerable. No one is ever going to actually be able to tally up every member of the church. It exceeds time. When we talk about the invisible nature of the church, Paul is a member of this. And as we read his words recorded through history and protected through God's sovereignty to give us the written word that we read from this morning, this inspired text, Paul is a member of this body. I'm one with Paul. You are one with the Apostle John. The same spirit that carried him along to write these letters is the same spirit that carries us to carry out the Great Commission in our homes, in Greenwood, in Arkansas, in the United States, and in the world. What a tremendous power. And what a shame that it could be defamed by man's selfish ambition. The same body of Christ all throughout the world. Now I mentioned again, you know, doctrine precedes this practical and we see that those who are in Christ are part of this body. We have to ask who places man in God? The answer, of course, is God does. The wonder, though, is that how this is different for each and and every person. There's instances of of Muslims who have read the Bible or even studied um, sacred text, and, and they've come to a divine revelation all on their own without an evangelist. And that person's completely isolated, unable to study with the rest of the body of Christ. There's dramatic revelations of people who have have gone the wrong way in life and they've suffered the consequences of living a life of debauchery. Thrown into jail, they they find a Bible and with the excess of time on their hands, they, they read it and they come to an understanding to know Christ. And true transformations. Men who are wicked become truly benevolent and loving and caring and compassionate. And some of you have seen those testimonies. Some of you have those testimonies. This way that people are grafted into this body is remarkable. Not not one is the same. But they're grafted into the same body. And I love talking about these dramatic points of conversion that that we've talked about because I think everyone's heard some examples of it. And they say, well, I just feel that my testimony is not so good because it's not so dramatic. But it's so special. It's in just the same way it's so special. 
Because it's the way that God chooses to work in our lives. By the way, note here, we need to be careful when comparing somebody's conversion to our own. No two are the the same. If you want an example of that, think of the two blind men who Jesus healed. In Mark chapter 8 and John chapter 9, one blind man, he, he spits in the ground, takes the mud, rubs it in his face, tells him to walk to the pool of Siloam to wash it off, and then he's able to see. The other one, he just, just a little spittle, rubs it on his face, and he's able to see. Imagine these two men meeting each other. Oh man, you could see again? That's awesome, that's great. Did he, did he rub the mud on your eyes? What, what did he think when he was doing that? Oh no, he... He didn't do that. Oh. Well, what did you you think about the walk to the pool of Siloam where you had to wash? Oh, actually, I I didn't have to do that. It'd be kind of strange for the one man to say to the other, I I think you're still blind. Christians need to be careful of comparing their testimonies to the other. Even when we baptize members, You'll notice, um, and I hope that we'll have a baptism next week. You'll notice the the words that we say, and and in that ceremony we say, by profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That baptism is no assurance that a person has been saved. It's not the church signing off or giving this person some sort of guarantee It is simply by their profession. Because these testimonies, not one is the same. And maybe you don't have a dramatic testimony or this great alterations or this great transformation or this great Damascus moment where a light shines around you from heaven. In fact, if any of you told me that a light shone around you from heaven, I would would probably send you somewhere for help. But it's remarkable to be with God's body and to watch these people come to know Christ. And you know who I'm talking about, those who are, who are slow to come to Christ. I call them the change anglers. Because we stand up for worship and, you know, the change anglers, they stand there. They don't open their mouths. They don't even act like they're singing. There's not a joyful word in their heart, and they stand there and they just listen. And through repetition, through a softening of their heart, through experiencing real Christian charity, real Christian love, real people who actually seek to reconcile with somebody who hurt them instead of hold a grudge against them. I don't know what it is. God starts to work in their heart. Oh, and those change anglers, maybe they start to sing just a little bit. And they hear these words repeated, these songs that we sing. And I've never not left church and not had an earworm. All throughout the day singing that song. Reminding them 
of these truths. You may not think that that testimony isn't special. I think it's amazing. And I think we need to celebrate more of it. Now, I mentioned that the church has an invisible component, and I cannot but help but also talk about the visible component of the church because I think it's equally as important here. In truth, when we talk about the invisible component of the church, there's no way to deny it because it's clearly explained there in Scripture and clearly evident across uh, local boundaries. It's impossible to truly be visible. For one, even if we could gather all of the Christians in the world together, we can't gather all the Christians across time together. We can't. Even if we were to find their bodies and somehow conglomerate them there, how could we possibly take all of the Christians who are in the future? This invisible nature of the church is impossible to really perceive. And so we have to also understand that the visible component is completely essential to the way that the church functions. And understanding that, I would say that the invisible aspect of the church is deficient in describing the whole nature of the church. It describes one part of it, not the whole of it. The visible nature of the church, that is the local called-out assembly, is incredibly important because it is this unity that we have with believers that pulls us to one another. pulls us to one another. You see, I really don't understand people who say that they are saved, but would rather not be a part of the church. That's crazy. Unless you just don't understand what the church is. It's actually quite absurd. If you say that you are a Christian, but you are okay not being involved in your church, being a member of your church, bearing each other's burdens in the church, suffering long-suffering that it requires to maintain the unity, being humble and putting your, um, your, you know, what, everything that we talked about last week, you have real cause to doubt the reality of that salvation. Because if the unity of the Spirit is inside of you, calling us together, you're either not obedient to it, or you have no way of listening to it because it's not there. You see, there's an expectant outcome, and I'm to my last point. An expectant outcome to understanding this nature of the church It is remarkably incongruent that somebody who claims to be a believer or a follower of our Lord could not see a need to be a member of his visible body. We speak of this unity, and and the truth is complex, as complex as the Trinity, possibly more than we are even capable of knowing. But Paul prays, and his prayer for the church in Ephesus, the prayer that I said is my prayer for this church, is that we would have a knowledge that goes beyond knowing. And the way we know it is by experiencing it. That's why our conversion is so special. Why this being grafted into one body is so overwhelming, whether it's this dramatic conversion or a not-so-dramatic conversion. How are people saved? First, they're convicted. People don't like to hear this. 
The gospel, as sweet as it is, brings you down before it lifts you up. It makes you recognize, you talk about all these sinners in the world, and man says, yeah, the world's pretty bad. There's some bad people in it. Glad I'm not a part of it. I think of the Trunchable and Matilda looking at this young little girl and how much she despises children, and the Trunchable says, I hate children. I am certainly glad I never was one. That's you're crazy. We become convicted in realizing that when we see the sin of the world, we are as much a part of it as anyone else. In fact, as much a part of it as the worst of the worst. Then we become convinced of Jesus' work on the cross and the necessity that we have of it as a perfect substitute. He is the solution to our depravity. Then we finally become converted, and through that process we are transformed, made anew, a new creation that is in Christ, no longer a part of this world, but completely made holy. That's what sanctified means. We're set apart. We become separated from it. And then through this progression, we actually, and this is the part, Christians, and we saw where Paul is going in chapter 4, and this is why the church is so essential, because we begin to become conformed to the image of Christ, like somebody taking mold, because we are no longer this old self, but we're being shaped into the image of our Lord. And this isn't by mimicking, this is by real transformation. And it's through this molding, through the sharing of one spirit, through the being grafted into one body, that all of a sudden we have communion with God. Because the same spirit of God is inside of me, I have communion with him. Talk about this application of prayer. The Spirit translates the utterances, the words that I'm not even able to pray, to Jesus up in heaven, who at the right hand of the Father is my constant intercessor, who is my advocate. This is amazing. And we're all a part of it. When we pray together in unity, that is the same Spirit inside of us praying. Not our unique spirits coming together and and joining forces, not a portion of the Holy Spirit, but the entire summation of the Holy Spirit praying within all of us at the same time. Our church is a special place. All of this, and I'll make this last point and, and try to be short of it because I think I've explained what biblical hope is pretty well over the past couple of weeks. All of this... Maintaining one body, one spirit, because of the one hope that we were, belongs to our call. When we come to that phrase, there's two questions to consider. What is this hope? First, that it is expectant and it's sure to happen. It's not some sort of wishful thinking. When we talk about the Bible, that's in no ways what we mean. And uh, it, it is expectant. It is sure to happen. What is this thing that we are so sure is going to happen as Christians? It is the resurrection. The resurrection of this one body. United in one spirit. Joined together in heaven. And my friends, I I think you're as as aware as I am that 
one of the contemporary criticisms of Christians is that we have this kind of pie-in-the-sky idea that Christianity simply is a way of dealing with the grief of loss or even with the end. We do not have a pie-in-the-sky perspective. Rather, our hope that Paul describes here is the present blessing of the knowledge of what is sure to come in the future. This is what it means that we would be united. Because when we think about how this hope relates to the call that is on our life, we realize not only is there something bigger, there's something more pressing. Brother Jim does a great job of reminding me at least once a week that it is in my best interest to never get old. And I normally say the same thing every time he says that. And I'm glad I finally come up with something to say because it was a difficult, um, it was a difficult interaction first when I first came here as pastor. Because there's nothing I can do about it. I'm getting older every day. And so are you. I just tell him I'll take it under advisement. Now, I'm not as old as some of you. In fact, most of you. But I already know that getting old sucks. There's no fun in it. Um, I did read that, that men's physical and mental peak comes around about the age 45. And so everyone who's older than that, you're, you're on... But, um, and so I still have that to look forward to, and so I'm excited about that. You know, if I just look at life from the perspective of getting old sucks because there's grief that comes with it, and, oh man, the suffering that comes along with living life with a body that is literally decaying, with a mind that is just becoming... You know, timed. Um, I think that's very, that's something to despair about. Well, in fact, I, in many cases, I, I'd get to the peak and I'd almost just rather be with Jesus. In fact, I'd rather be with him now than even look forward to getting to the peak. But you see this hope that we have in the resurrection of all of the saints gives us something much bigger that we have to look forward to. And that is the fact that through our lives, there is the, the work that we are called to uh, uh, together that we would see others come to know Christ. And this mission is tremendous that we would see others come to go through this, this convicting and through this convincing and through this conversion and this conformation and this uh, communion that we share with one another. When we think about the work of the church, and our mission statement, I think, captures this all too well. First, 
to point people to God. People who are living in a world, suffering through the anguish of living in a world that is, un, well, I guess justly, um, just inflicted with all of the burdens of sin and the consequences of sin, to point them through that to God. To a God that loves us, is compassionate, who is able to be compassionate because he understands exactly what we're going through. To pull people together because through our unity in the Spirit, we are one. And prepare people to be on mission so that more people can experience that. I'm struggling with this sermon this morning because the truth is this text, even though we've gone over it so many times and we've talked about the unity of the body and it has certainly been pressing on my heart and everything that comes along with it and the nature of the church and, and what it actually means to be united as a church and to, to function as a church. I've said this before, but if you haven't heard me say it, I pray that you would hear me say it this time. If you really understand the nature of the church, you cannot help but be in love with it. With all of its flaws, with everything that it is, with all of the hurt that comes with it, you cannot help but love it. When I think of this mission that we have before us, that we would point people to God, that we would pull people to one another, that we would point, prepare people to live on mission, I think about where we are at in that mission. And the truth is, we'll never, be, we'll, we'll, we'll never be finished. This work's going to continue until Jesus comes back. Oh, and it's a pressing work. There's so much urgency with it, but it comes with so much disappointment and so much rejection. And we're easily deterred by hurt feelings and just immature Christian attitudes towards one another because we haven't understood the church the way that we're supposed to. I want to ask you, when we talk about the mission of the church, and it's missions month, so it's a good time to talk about it. When we talk about the mission of the church, where are we at on that journey? More pressingly, where are you at on that journey? I think everyone knows the solution. What we need in this church, what Greenwood as a community needs, what our country needs, what the entire world needs is a revival. And revival is a funny word because in America there's this culture that, that churches, particularly Baptist churches, and this goes back all the way, well, actually, since... Baptists started meeting in America, we would hold revivals. Uh, I've even been invited to preach a revival at another church where they would invite different churches in the community in and, and hopefully have some sort of outreach that goes along with it. I want you to think that's a funny mechanism for ministry. How can you have a revival? A revival doesn't happen because of some special program or some tent that you stand up or something that you put together. 
In fact, revival in the church doesn't even happen because everyone gets united with one another. You know where revival happens? There was, a, there was a great revival in America. One of the first big ones that really started the evangelistic movement when, when Baptists really started meeting in America. And some historians did some work to trace back where this revival started, who planned it, how they organized it, because they wanted to replicate it, and they wanted to make this happen again. And they traced it back to two old women who covenanted together to meet together once a week in one of their homes and to pray for the lost in their community. Thousands of people coming to know Christ for the first time. We look around and say, my church is too small to be effective in missions. My association is too small to be effective in doing missions. Little old me, I'm too incapable, incompetent, too stupid to be effective in missions. You want to know where revival starts? Imagine that you have a chalk, a piece of chalk. Draw a circle around you. And pray that God would plant a revival in everything that is inside of that circle. Because revival starts with you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship you and to hear your word. Lord, I pray that where I failed to expound upon your word, that your Holy Spirit would speak truth into our hearts now, that you would guide us into understanding of all things that we've heard and all that you have pressed upon our heart. Lord, as I stop speaking, I pray that you would remind us that this sermon is not over that your Holy Spirit continues to talk to us. God, I pray that as we stand to sing songs of your glory and how we worship you and our unity with one another and we reflect on the truths that we've heard, Lord, I pray that you would guide us to apply this to our lives the way that we are meant to. Lord, create unity in your body and keep me from being what detracts from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.